Today, you can't make it through the magazine aisle of the store without seeing some magazine cover lauding the merits of meditation. It seems like the less Christian our culture becomes, the more people become obsessed with meditation. The church has a long and rich tradition of meditation. Is this what modern self-help gurus are talking about? Or is there something more that the church offers when it's talking about meditation? This episode of Physically Spiritual will explore Christian meditation. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Welcome back to Physically Spiritual. As we get started, I want to share some opportunities with you. If you want to support everything we do here at Awaken Catholic, consider becoming a part of the Awaken Nation. The Awaken Nation is a community of patrons that, uh, for as little as a cup of coffee a week and money, support what we do. Uh, when you become a member of the nation, you can select your favorite show host or the show that you get the most out of, and part of your donation will go toward uh, reimbursing that that show host for the work they do. Uh, but with the nation, you get access to bonus content, and you also get access to other premium pieces of the Awaken app. Speaking of the app, if you want the best experience of everything that we do here at Awaken Catholic, download the app. Go to the awakenapp.io or search for the Awaken app in the Google Play Store or the App Store on your Apple phone. So on the app, there are... Um, there's music, there are prayers, discussion boards, and alternate to social media. All of the episodes are posted in video and audio, and you can join discussions with the show hosts and also get access to your premium content with the Awaken Nation. So if you want everything we're doing here from Awaken Catholic, get the app. Physically Spiritual, we're also partners with the Hollow app. Hollow is a Catholic meditation app to help you find peace and grow in your spiritual journey. Hollow has sleep stories, guided meditations, a course on how to begin to pray, and also premium features. So go to hollow.app forward slash awaken to sign up with our member link. And if you want to find anything that I publish or do, go to becominggift.com. And if you want support applying any of the ideas from the show, go to becominggift.com forward slash coach to find my coaching and spiritual direction practice. So this episode of Physically Spiritual is about meditation. But what is meditation? Right? And in the intro, I brought up uh, you know, all these magazine covers you see about meditation, different studies that come out lauding the benefits of meditation. Oftentimes people have this image of, of someone in lotus pose, you know, holding their hands somehow, I can't quite pull it off, um, with their legs crossed, or maybe sitting on some mountainside or or wearing the robes of an Eastern monk. And these ideas of meditation permeate our culture to the point where I think every time we hear the word meditation, that's probably what pops into our mind. But as Catholics, there is a rich tradition of meditation in our church and as part of the Christian spiritual tradition. So is, are these the same things? Is what we find in, in the non-Christian Eastern parts of the world, and when I say East, I mean in, relative to Europe, so are different countries in Asia, Asia or uh, in, in the quote-unquote West, um, are these the same things? Well, one thing that has to be pointed out is that there's a different worldview. And since there's a different worldview, there's a different end or a different goal between these two different, very general kind of categories of meditation, Christian meditation versus non-Christian forms of mysticism. Um, so the next episode of Physically Spiritual that's about prayer, so that'd be three episodes from now, is actually going to be an in-depth look at Eastern practices and whether or not they're compatible with Christianity, should Christians um, do something like yoga, for example, or mindfulness, uh, transcendental meditation, like how do these practices fit in a Christian's life? But to begin this episode, I want to at least give a little bit of information just so you can differentiate in your mind what I'm talking about today versus what we'll talk about in the next episode. Uh, so the goal or the end of Christian meditation is communion with God. 
When the Christian prays, when the Christian meditates, our goal is to enter into a love relationship with another person. And that other person, a divine person, is um, is the ultimate goal of that prayer. On, on the other hand, uh, non-Christian religions have a completely different end in mind because they either have a different conception of God or maybe they believe in multiple gods or maybe they have a more impersonal experience in mind. Uh, an example might be an idea that um, that personal identity doesn't actually exist. Right? So the goal of meditation from that perspective would be realizing or having the illusion of personal identity stripped away and coming into communion with the sort of world soul or 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 uh, gathered general consciousness that's underpinning everything, right? These aren't Christian ideas. These aren't Christian worldviews. Uh, so when when an, uh, a non-Christian mystic is approaching meditation, they're doing something very different than what a Christian monk, like a Benedictine monk or Trappist monk, may be trying to do when they meditate. Does this mean that these these uh, practices are or like condemned by the church? No, they don't. And and there's uh, some pretty precise language the church uses when talking about these practices. So this is going to be the topic of that next episode. So look forward to that. Uh, but I want to share something from a letter that the Congregation of the Doctrine and, and of the Faith, which is an office in the Vatican which reviews materials for um, theological orthodoxy, wrote. Uh, so this is paragraph from paragraph twenty eight. It says, that does not mean that genuine practices of meditation, which come from the Christian East and from great non-Christian religions, which prove attractive to the men of today, who, man of today who is divided and disoriented, cannot constitute a suitable means of helping the person who prays to come before God with an interior peace, even in the midst of external pressures. Right, so this is a little teaser from the next episode. So these non-Christian forms of meditation could actually form a suitable preparation for Christian meditation, right? What this passage is saying is that if they're authentic and genuine, meaning they're compatible with human nature, and then they're used in the right context, these, these practices may help you have a sense of peace or calmness or clarity of mind by which you could then enter into Christian meditation uh, and find God in a clearer way, um, all right, so now to shift gears onto the idea of Christian meditation. Let's dig deep into that topic today. Uh, first, if you go back a few episodes in season two, episode six, there was an episode on the three expressions of prayer. So the second of which is meditation. So there's a quick introduction to meditation in those three expressions of prayer. So there's a little bit of review from that episode. But if you want uh, a little more time spent on this introductory material, go back to that episode and have a listen. Christian meditation is discursive. Discursive. That's just a fancy word that means proceeds by reason. So so discursive means you go from point A to point B. There's a thought process of steps that you're going through with your mind. So when the, the Christian is talking about meditating, they're talking about thinking. It's talking about filling the mind with truth, with information, with knowledge, with experience. And by doing that, proceeding from one step to another to find God in it. And this is important because these non-Christian forms of meditation are typically focused on somehow emptying the mind uh, or or coming to a a point of, of stillness in the mind. So the focus isn't on this discursive thought process. The focus is on an emptying and a calming or a focusing on one thing to the exclusion of everything else. Um, so a little more of the distinction between the two. This is what the Catechism has to say in paragraph 2708. It says, Meditation engages thought, imagination, emotion, and desire. This mobilizes mobilization of faculties is necessary in order to deepen our conversion of faith, prompt the conversion of our heart, and strengthen our will to follow Jesus. So meditation engages thought, imagination, emotion, and desire, right? These faculties of the soul. And this mobilization is in order to, right? The goal is to deepen our convictions of faith, right? So so meditation in this perspective is a means to an end. It's to prompt conversion of our heart, meaning to dispose our heart to receive the grace that God wants to offer us to change us and to strengthen our will to follow Christ, right? So we're forming our mind to inform our will, to move our will. 
So let's take a look at our faculties of the soul chart that we keep visiting here in season two to just take a deeper look at what this means. If you're not watching the episode, if you're listening to the episode, you can get this chart in the show notes of any of the episodes where I refer to it. So this this passage says we're engaging our thought, imagination, emotion, and desire, mobilization of faculties. These faculties are sometimes referred to as the internal senses, meaning we're taking the, the, the input from our external senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And by, um, by then having these uh, uh, memories that we have, our imagination, uh, like we might be reading a piece of the scripture or remembering something from our life, we're, we're then thinking about, about these experiences, and this is forming our desires. So these desires are our appetites, or what's sometimes called our passions, our irascible appetite, our attraction or repulsion to things that are attractive or unattractive, and then our concupiscible appetite, our retract, attraction or repulsion toward things that seem difficult or easy. So this is what happening is happening when we're meditate. We're, we're presenting things to our senses to then move our passions. And then by moving our passions, we're forming our reason and our will to then come into deeper relationship with God. All right, so a little bit more clarification of terms. Uh, we can uh, move off the, the, the uh, chart now. So some consider meditation to be a part of mental prayer, and others use the term meditation and mental prayer synonymously. So this can be a little confusing when you're hearing different, uh, different authors talk about meditation. Sometimes this term meditation is used synonymously with mental prayer in general, meaning someone might say, well, have you made your meditation yet today? Or have you taken time for meditation? And what they're saying is, have you taken the time to pray um, part of that prayer being the act of meditating. Other, other people use this term meditation as a certain step of mental prayer. So mental prayer is sort of a bigger exercise of which meditation is a, a part of that. And this is the way that I'm going to be using the term meditation today. So when I say meditation, think of it this way. That mental prayer is this sort of bigger thing that meditation is a part of. So the meditation and prayer are going to go back and forth. So during your, your quote-unquote mental prayer time you take during the day, meaning just the time that you, you take to, to pray and relate to God as if he's actually there, because he is, you're going to spend time thinking about the faith or thinking about the scripture, thinking about your life. And that thought is going to cause right, considerations, meaning insights. It's going to form your reason. And then also affections. It's going to move your passions and it's going to affect your will. And then you're going to talk to God about what you're meditating on, either sharing your feelings, sharing your thoughts, asking God questions, spending time listening, um, maybe wordless contact of being with God. So your mental prayer time is going to be this back and forth between meditation and prayer, meditation and prayer. So this is the way that I am using these terms, and uh, you. But you may hear other authors or other speakers talk about meditation synonymously with mental prayer. So just a heads up on that when you're studying this topic from the Christian perspective. So what does meditation do for our body? There are natural um, positive benefits of meditation, and this is often what uh, these magazine covers are talking about that I mentioned earlier, there are natural benefits to meditation. I would highly recommend a book called Altered Traits. The subtitle is Science Reveals How Meditation Changes Your Mind, Brain, and Body. This is by Richard Davison and Daniel Goleman. Now, one thing to keep in mind, these men are primarily studying Eastern practices, um, primarily studying yoga, mindfulness, things like this, but they're applying a rigorous method to the study. A lot of meditation studies are, are fraught with problems, uh, and some of these are typically the people that are studying meditation already have a positive view of it, so they're going into the study looking for positive benefits, or, or their thesis may um, possibly skew their perspective, and they might not be very objective. And then also a lot of times um, these studies might not be very rigorous, meaning that the study is not, um, is not carefully designed in to, to eliminate other possible explanations for the situation. Um, so, so a study a lot of times will have a control, meaning there's a group of people in the study that might do the meditation, 
And then there might be another group of, of people in the study that do something else that could be positive, right? And that would be a better control than just studying the general population in which there's, um, there, there's no elimination of other possible positive things that could be happening or negative things that could be taking away from the people. So the results can be skewed. Uh, here's what uh, Davidson and Goldman say in their book. Among the iffy, iffy findings gone viral with enthusiastic claims uh, are that meditation thickens the brain's executive center, the prefrontal cortex, while shrinking the amygdala, the trigger for our freeze, fight, or flight response. That meditation shifts our brain's set point for emotions into a more positive range. That meditation slows aging and that meditation can be used to treat diseases ranging from diabetes to ADHD. On closer look, each of the studies on which these claims are based has problems with the methods used. They need more testing and corroboration to make firm claims. Such findings may well stand up to further scrutiny or may not. Right. So this is why I think this book is so excellent, because it actually takes a, a, a critical and objective eye toward the findings and actually asking the questions, which studies are, are designed well and, and through which we can find good scientific claims and which ones are on shaky ground, meaning uh, meaning what, what they found isn't necessarily untrue, but we just need to corroborate the results and, and test these things more before we make these grandiose claims that meditation is going to take all of our problems away and make our lives perfect. Uh, here's what they, they say um, are some of the actual um, promising findings that are corroborated by many different studies that are, are designed well. This is what they say. It says, the four main neural pathways meditation transforms are first those reacting to disturbing events, stress, and our recovery from it. Second, brain systems for compassion and empathy. It turns out to be remarkably ready for an upgrade. Third, circuitry for attention. And fourth, neural systems for our very sense of self, meaning our sense of identity, our, our, our personal sense of, of who we are. So there's good evidence that meditation um, done consistently over extended periods of time affect these four areas of the brain in a positive way. And, and different forms of meditation, depending on, on what the focus is, may affect one of these more or less. But, but this is what we actually have some decent evidence for. And these, this, is, this is pretty good, right? I think our world is probably more stressed out than it needs to be, and we kind of get stuck in stress. So the fact that it can help uh, transform our reaction to disturbing events is good. Right, we need more compassion and empathy. Just traipse around social media for a few hours, and what you're going to see is a lot of people um, seemingly lacking empathy and seeing things from other people's perspective. Um, our ability to pay attention, right, just focus, uh, sustained attention for long periods of time, and then our sense of self. Really, the the effect is this diminished sense of self with an increased sense of confidence. Right. What we have is oftentimes a schizophrenic thing where, where we have this um, exaggerated sense of self or this ego-driven life where it's all about me, 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 mixed with this insecurity right? where, where I need a bunch of affirmation totally and, and people to speak well of me all the time. So meditation flips that, right? where we have a diminished sense of ego, where we have less focus on me, 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 coupled with a greater self-confidence meaning that I, I don't need external affirmation. I have an internal sense of confidence. I won't give away um, all, the, all the details in the book, and it's a few years old at this point, so there's probably a lot more research that's been done in the last four or five years, but it's a great book that, that actually looks at meditation from a critical eye, from a secular perspective. Now, the next step that's needed is actually looking at Christian meditation versus non-Christian meditation, Right? Are there are there positive benefits to the Christian tradition that that the non-Christian tradition doesn't have, and are there benefits that the non-Christian tradition has that the Christian tradition doesn't, or are all these benefits ubiquitous? Right? It doesn't matter how you meditate; just as long as you meditate, it's good. Uh, we certainly believe that it is positive to meditate for the body, regardless of of what the practice is. Um, but we don't have really good science to identify and to differentiate. The, the different methods and the, the different effects, right? So it's going to be a while before you go to your doctor and get a prescription 
for a certain style of meditation to match with um, to match with a certain um, problem you might have. Probably the the most rigorously studied uh, meditation form is MBSR, mindfulness based stress reduction. It's a um, it's a protocol that was designed, um, and it's really kind of a mingling of a bunch of different forms of meditation that are carried out over a course of weeks. And it's designed specifically to help with stress reduction. And this has been studied fairly extensively um, and has some pretty decent results. If you want to find a Christian adaptation of this, um, you can go back to our episode from season one with Dr. Greg Bataro and his work, The Mindful Catholic, which is just an application of the MBSR protocol um, with Catholic theology in such a way to explain why it's not incompatible with the faith. Although um, we'll talk more in the next episode about why that might even be controversial. Another uh, author studying this area is Dr. Dan Siegel from his book, Aware, The Science of Practice and Presence. He says, where attention goes, neurofiring flows and neuroconnection grows. I'll say that again. Where attention goes, neurofiring flows and neuroconnection grows. What's it mean? What we pay attention to, like the things that we that we think about, that we focus on, that we focus these internal senses on, memory, imagination, the, our common sense, where we focus these senses, our our attention is, and where our attention is, neurofiring flows, meaning the parts of the brain that are associated with that thought pattern are going to start firing, and then neuroconnection grows, right? So by meditating, we're strengthening the parts of our body. That, that are associated with what we're meditating on. <laughs> so if we're doing some kind of meditation that is going to help us de-stress and calm down, then we're going to strengthen the parts of the brain associated with that practice. Or in the Christian tradition, for example, if we're meditating on Christ's life, if we're calling to mind God's presence, then we're going to build the neurocircuitry associated with calling to mind God's presence. We're literally practicing the presence of God. Um, so I, I think this is really important with, with Christian meditation. We're not imposing ideas on reality, right? By faith, we know that God is present. We know that God is real. We know that God is, is with us, uh, both sacramentally present in us and also present to his creation by, by his, his imminence, by his um, omnipresence. Um, so God's presence is real around us. So by meditating, by calling to mind God's presence, by meditating on the scripture, meditating on God's presence in our life, by meditating on God's presence in creation, we're not imposing a falsehood on reality. We're actually exposing the truth of reality that's not obvious to our senses. So Christian meditation is a practice of truthfulness, is a practice of reality that's not obvious to the senses. So by doing it, we're strengthening the neural connections, the neural wiring for us to stay consistently in that state of truthfulness. Or what Christ said, the truth will set you free, right? We're, we're, we're forming our mind in the system. What's happening in our body when we meditate, by drawing our attention to something specific, our whole nervous system, our body is reacting to what we're drawing our attention to. Um, so our, our body's nervous system is always reacting to our surroundings. Go back to uh, season one, um, the episode, The Tiger in Your Inbox, if you want an introduction to the polyvagal theory. But, but our nervous system is always reacting to be connected and feeling safe, to not feeling safe, and so then going through flight, fight, or possibly even a freeze response, a shutdown place. So this is always happening. So wherever we draw our attention, our nervous system is following along with it in whatever's in our environment. Um, and this more primitive part of our brain that's associated with this system doesn't differentiate well between what's actually there and what we imagine being there. I've brought this point up in previous episodes quite a bit. Um, so whatever we're meditating on, our body is reacting to also. Meditation isn't a purely spiritual activity, and it's not just a brain activity. Meditation is a body activity. So by meditating on the Lord's presence, our body will start reacting as if God is actually there. And that reveals something. Um, 
Go back to season two of the episode, The Truth Will Set You Free, where God's presence in your body. And I, and I talk some about this. How does your body react to the thought of God's presence? All this is to say that meditation, we believe, does have positive physical benefits, positive benefits for health, positive benefits for, for mental health, and also positive benefits for the formation of, of your body in accordance with God's truth. Now, like I said, all of this needs to be um, studied in much more depth to really identify it clearly, um, especially Christian meditation hasn't been studied as much as non-Christian forms of meditation. Um, so time will tell exactly what else we'll discover. Let's shift gears and talk about meditation from the perspective of revelation, from a supernatural perspective. So in his letter to the Philippians, St. Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. St. Paul is essentially telling the people of Philippi to meditate, right? to think about the things that are honorable, true, just, good, pure. Meditate on it. Think about it. And this is what we are being asked to do too. Uh, remember at the beginning of the episode, I had mentioned that I see meditation as a part of mental prayer. Uh, here's a great um, quote from Father Thomas Dubay on page 52 of The Fire Within. He says, Meditation is only a remote means for union with God. One of the benefits deriving from discursive prayer is that through the delight it affords, it draws the beginner away from sensual things, and the world thus loses some of its appeal. So meditation is a remote preparation or means for union with God. Union with God meaning prayer, meditation being something that brings us to prayer. It's that step in mental prayer that disposes our heart and mind to God. But it also has the side benefit Right? Everything that we, we experience with our senses, we're attracted to or repulsed by. So by meditating, we're forming our senses to be attracted to the things of God. We're creating habits in ourselves. We're forming ourselves. Um, so in a sense, we're, we're toning down the, the knob. We're turning down the knob of, of our attraction to the things of the world. And we're toning up our attraction. We're turning up the volume on our attraction to the Lord. Uh, so as we start talking about meditation now from the Christian perspective, I want to point out a certain heresy that's been present throughout the history of the church and that we want to avoid. This heresy is called quietism. It's from the Latin word uh, for passivity. The, the old uh, Catholic encyclopedia says this, in the broadest sense of the doctrine, which declares that man's highest perfection consists in a sort of uh, Psychical or self, psychical self annihilation. Maybe I should have pulled up the New Catholic Encyclopedia. And a consequent absorption of the soul into the divine essence, even during the present life. In the state of quietude, the mind is wholly inactive. It no longer thinks or wills on its own account, but remains passive while God acts within it. All right, so the heresy of, of quietism in the broadest sense is this idea that the goal of prayer is self annihilation and the absorption of self into, into um, the divine essence. As I say this, uh, hopefully this is, um, this is uh, ringing some bells with what we talked about, the non-Christian forms of meditation earlier. Oftentimes an over-assimilation of non-Christian forms of meditation lead to a certain form of quietism, but this heresy has come up uh, in the history of the church multiple times. So the goal or, or, or state that a quietist seeks in their prayer is, is simply the, the turning off of all the faculties of the soul or the inactivity of the mind. And the idea is that if I just shut down all of my faculties, then I enable God to come in and do his work. Right? So there, there's always a, a subtle lie hidden in every heresy, meaning that there's some truth that's been slightly twisted. 
So it is true that even in Christian prayer and Christian meditation, that God's the protagonist of our change. God's the one working the change in us. But we believe that God does this by coming in contact with the faculties of our soul and moving the faculties of our soul. I mean, when, when God is changing us through our prayer, there's going to be movements of the heart typically that correspond to that change, right? God doesn't uh, do away with our humanity by bringing in uh, his divinity, right? What St. Irenaeus says is the glory of God is man fully alive, Meaning when God's transforming us in, in authentic Christian prayer, the faculties of our soul are coming along with it. And while there are periods of darkness in Christian prayer, or what, what uh, St. John of the Cross referred to as the nada, or the dark nights, uh, so there are these periods where our faculties are, are sort of disoriented or God seems absent. Uh, this isn't the ultimate state or the goal of the Christian life. These are, are purifying nights that are temporary by which we go through a suffering because it, it's, it's an experience that's difficult for our human nature to deal with. But by going through that, then it prepares our faculties to receive God in an even more deep, deep way. And then our faculties of the soul are engaged in a way that transcends the way they were engaged previously. So the ultimate goal of Christian prayer isn't the annihilation of our faculties, the shutting down of our mind. It's really the upgrading of our faculties in our mind so that we can experience God in a new way that's a foretaste of heaven. So as Christians, we believe in the resurrection of the body and that ultimately heaven is a physical state, meaning the beatific vision, vision, sight, external sense, is an engagement with our internal and external senses in the divine essence, we're, we're upgraded to receive God in a, in a real way, a substantive way. And the theological virtue of faith is the foretaste of that. So, so part of the Christian tradition is that, that faith isn't just a notional understanding of God that we're given, that we just reach into the darkness, but that the theological virtue of faith actually gives us an experience of God who is there. So the theological virtue, this giving of, of, of grace, uh, this giving of divine eyesight, um, bridges the gap between the human and the, the divine so that we have a positive experience of God. And while that experience of God doesn't come, come with it with sense experiences, it does give us uh, a true knowledge of God. Right? So we, we begin to experience God in a way that we would in heaven, right? Just a beginning, just a foretaste, just a glimmer, just a little bit. But it's true and it's real. And, and the growth of that faith, the growth of the theological virtues, is what's happening as we're growing in prayer. It's not an annihilation of our faculties like the quietists think. Um, so this is going to be one of the main foils we're going to use to distinguish between non-Christian meditation and Christian meditation um, as we talk about it in the next episode. So now let's talk about how should we meditate? What's the method? What's the method? Well, remember, the goal isn't the method. The goal isn't the meditation. The goal is intimacy with the divine person. So mental prayer is an act of intimacy between the divine persons and the human person. So method is helpful to the extent that it enables and sustains divine intimacy and is harmful to the extent that it gets in the way of divine intimacy. So method is helpful to the extent that it brings us in relationship with God and harmful to the extent that it gets in the way or becomes a distraction. Sometimes you're going to sit down to pray and it, it's just going to feel like it works. There's going to be kind of a sync that happens or a flow state that happens and God is there and feels real and, it, and it's like magical, right? Almost like... Um, you know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they step into Narnia. Or there's going to be times where you sit down and pray, and it's like you're in a different world. When that happens, set your meditation aside. Like, the goal has already been reached. God is there. And you can talk to the Lord and sit in his presence and enjoy him and let him change you. Um, so when that happens, that's awesome. But other times you're going to sit down and try to pray, 
And you're going to wonder, like, does God even exist? Like, what am I doing? Am I wasting my time? I'm just distracted. I'm all over the place. Right? And this is the very place where meditation is the tool uh, that helps us come in contact with the divine to work through that disorientation, that, that confusion, that distraction that comes with the world, and to direct our senses to the Lord. Um, so how do we do this? What are the steps? If, if you read uh, different Christian traditions, there's generally sort of five steps to the, to the uh, meditation that you might consider. Um, so one is simply the when and the where. We're creatures of sense. These external senses are important. We're not detached minds. The goal isn't to discard the body. So when you pray and where you pray is very important. Generally in the tradition, uh, most people recommend praying first thing in the morning. And the idea is that you're sort of starting your day. There's not a bunch of other things that have come to mind or come to your uh, come into your senses. So you, you pray then because um, your mind is free to pray. Now, that doesn't work for everyone. Some people wake up and they're just too tired, right? Some people are, are sort of primed to focus right before bed. It's like the whole day is done. So now my mind can finally rest and I can focus on the Lord. There was a period of my life when my best prayer time happened, like right before lunch, kind of midday. Like nighttime, I was ready for bed and in the morning, I wasn't up yet. So that midday time was like prime time for prayer. Um, as I've gotten older now, that morning time is the prime time. Like I wake up, get a little bit of coffee, and I sit down and, and pray. Uh, so the when is important. The where is important too, because you're going to be drawn by everything around you. What you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you feel is going to affect your senses. And we can't fully remove all of these things from our our perspective. So having an, an environment that's um, good for, for meditation, for prayer is important. Uh, so I would recommend just having somewhere that you dedicate to pray. Meaning you, you don't do anything else there, whether you're able to set up a chapel or a shrine in your house, or you just have a chair somewhere where there's not a lot of distractions around it where you pray. The other thing is get rid of your phone. Like if you need to know what time it is, put a clock there. Uh, turn your phone off, put it somewhere else. It's just too darn attractive. It's too much of a distraction. All right, so that's the when and the where. Uh, on the other hand, um, don't let the perfect be the enemy of, of good. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of done. So maybe you live in like a, like a studio apartment or you don't even have your own space. Um, just do it anyways. The second is some kind of preparation. Uh, oftentimes, authors talk about a remote preparation for prayer. They'll actually talk about preparing your meditation ahead of time. So whatever you're going to think about um, during your meditation, whatever you're going to try to focus on and pray and form your your mind and your will toward, you're going to actually prepare at an earlier period of time, at a separate time, so that while you're praying, you don't have to think about the meditation too much. But you can let that time be more uh, of, a, of a relational kind of thinking and less of a study kind of thinking. So like Ignatius of Loyola recommends the night before to prepare your meditation by like reading the scripture passage or the guided meditation that you're going to look at to think about it a little bit so that when, when you get to prayer the next morning, when you, when you do that meditation, the points of consideration are already there. Uh, or you might use a meditation book so that that work has already been done for you by the author. There's also an immediate preparation for meditation, meaning as you're approaching your time for prayer and meditation, you might do some things to help you focus. That might include different forms of movement, different forms of breathing, visualization, and preparatory prayer. Uh, so like what I do currently when I try to meditate, and, and this is always changing, this is shifting. So if you ask me in a month, I'll probably be doing something different. I'll, I do a movement called a cross crawl, or you can call it, a, a, some people call it a windmill. You, um, you put your hands behind your head, twist your torso, and touch your elbow to the opposite knee. So you do this high knee kind of movement, and you might be visualizing it thinking that's kind of weird. But this sort of activates the body. I tend to run low, meaning I, I tend to sort of be too calm and, and in a shutdown state. So when I'm going to try to pray, if I'm going to focus and engage, I actually need to bring myself up a little bit. I, if, I, if I just start out with some like breathing and calm myself down, I'm going to go too low and I'm going to shut down 
and just go like mindless for a while. So doing that cross crawl, um, at least what I've been told is that movement of, of touching things across the body sort of gets both sides of the brain going and gets the blood flow going. Whatever it does, it kind of helps me focus and gets me going. So some kind of movement that makes sense. Then I do some breathing. Nothing fancy, nothing nothing uh, like magical or mystical about it. Just breathe in, breathe out, do, do what's comfortable. I sometimes will count five seconds in, hold for five seconds, five seconds out, hold for five seconds, or I'll do a times two breath, meaning I'll breathe in for five seconds or four seconds, and then I'll breathe out for twice as long. So if my breathe in is three, I'll breathe out for six. If I breathe in for four, I'll breathe out for eight. Breathing in revs the sympathetic nervous system, right? The energy energizing, breathing out, revs up the sympathetic, the the parasympathetic nervous system, meaning the break, the calm down, the connection. So you're you're simply actuating your nervous system back and forth and making flexibility in it. So if you're stuck up or down, it can help. Then I'll do some visualization. Ignatius of Loyola uh, has two visualizations he recommends at the start of the exam, and I use this. Uh, The first one is to call to mind how God sees you. So the scripture passage that comes to my mind from the Old Testament is you are, you are precious in my sight and glorious, right? So I recall that scripture passage, you're precious in my sight and glorious. And then I just call to mind uh, what that would mean about God's face, like how God would see me if that were true. Uh, And then the second visualization is um, call to mind God's presence. So I imagine literally Jesus sitting down next to me. Like, how's he sitting? Is, are his hands on me or not on me? What's he look like? What's that feel like? Right? What I'm doing is I'm, by that visualization, I'm priming my body uh, to the truth. Right? God is seeing me. I am precious and glorious in his sight. And God is present to me. That's a reality. So I'm, I'm, I'm moving my body into that state of truthfulness. And also an opening prayer. Right? Just talk to God. Share your heart. Uh, I do like my morning offering and an act of a surrender to the Lord, of submission of my life to the Lord, because I'm praying first thing in the morning. But any prayer is fine. So any Christian prayer, I recommend a set prayer that you can sort of um, just pray well or, or maybe write your own prayer that expresses your sentiments. Uh, so, so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm kind of starting from the bottom up, and I'm priming my whole person to enter into the meditation effectively. right? Just starting out with a movement, right? the base level, kind of animal layer of myself. And then I'm doing some breathing and I'm going deeper, affecting my nervous system, starting to get into my mind. Then I'm visualizing, I'm priming my brain and and my body to that reality. And I'm starting to focus on what's there. And then I move into prayer. So I go through these steps. You might not need that much preparation. I kind of get lost in my own thoughts a lot. I either shut down and and am just like turned off and want to stare at the wall or like my mind's really worked up and I have a hard time focusing on what I want to focus on. Um, so this extended preparation helps me to enter into the time and, um, and, uh, and really think about what I want to think about and not everything else that comes to mind. So after this, doing the actual meditation itself, so whether it be something on scripture or a meditation book that you have, and the goal of this meditation is to move the faculties of the soul. So you're, you're trying to, to, to come to realizations or what's sometimes called considerations to, to knowledge of, or, or to see something different in the passage. Or you're forming affections, meaning you're moving your heart, you're causing passions, or you're causing your will to move uh, by what you're reading. And by doing this, the goal is to then enter into heart-to-heart conversation with the Lord, uh, traditionally called colloquy, or simply the word conversation. So talking to the Lord as if he's actually there, because he is. Uh, uh, having a conversation with the Lord, asking the Lord questions about your life or about what you meditated on, spending time in silence to listen for that response. Maybe the conversation is like that that dinner uh, between the, the, the elderly couple who's been married for 50 years and don't have anything to say to each other. But there's this kind of quiet connection in the being together, right? So that might be part of your colloquy. You might also just pour out your heart to the Lord. Part of this colloquy might also be journaling, that that writing it out 
in writing, God's response engages the body and mind in a different way, and that might help you engage. But this heart-to-heart conversation with the Lord, and then uh, with it, then the closing, two elements to the closing that you'll find in a lot of sources. One are resolutions, meaning this conversation with the Lord is going to draw your heart and your mind to things that you should change about your life. So making some kind of resolution, a firm commitment to change, to be different today as a result of that prayer. Uh, when we, we talked about prayer earlier in the season of Physically Spiritual, I emphasized the connection between uh, growth in prayer and growth in virtue. Right? There's, no, uh, there's no deepening of prayer without uh, and also a growth in virtue because prayer is intimacy with God. And our moral life make, make us more or less compatible with the Lord, more or less like the Lord. So our prayer becomes deeper and more intimate because we are able, by the increase of faith, hope, and love, to be more intimate with the Lord. And then also having a closing prayer. And this would just be another set prayer. Uh, like Ignatius of Loyola recommends the Our Father. Nothing fancy, but you might pick another prayer that works for you, like a glory be or some other prayer from the tradition. Um, so some closing prayer that you might set your, your mind by. Um, and in your mental prayer time, you'll probably actually phase between these different steps. So you might get really distracted during your prayer and go back to some of the stuff in your preparation because you realize like your body just isn't there for you to pray with, to focus or you might talk to the Lord, then feel like you run out of things to say. So you might shift into the, like, the quiet time, or you might shift back to the meditation and, and read some more of the scripture or go back over the same passage or the same thing from your meditation book and reflect more on it, move your affections more, and then come back to the conversation. And then uh, you might throw in a set prayer if you're inspired to say a glory be. Um, so your mental prayer time is going to be more fluid Right, this shifting back and forth of the discursive prayer, the vocal prayer, and the, the quiet prayer, the conversational prayer. Here's what the Catechism has to say about meditation in 2705. It says, Meditation is above all a quest. The mind seeks to understand the why and the how of the Christian life in order to adhere and respond to what the Lord is asking. The required attentiveness is difficult to sustain. We are usually helped by books, and, the, the, and Christians do not want for them the sacred scripture, particularly the gospels, holy icons, liturgical texts of the day or season, writings of the spiritual fathers, works of spirituality, the great book of creation, and that of history, the page on which today the today of God is written. So these are all sources of meditation, meaning things that could be suitable for your attention and your focus, your thought. The scripture, especially the gospels. I highly recommend the book, uh, The Better Part by Father John Bartunek. Going, he goes through the gospels, great prepared meditations on each one. There's also a great section on how to meditate, how to, to pray at the beginning of that book. And if you don't want the full thing, but you want to see that section, uh, there's actually a, a an, an uh, ebook that just pulls out his introductory materials on how to pray. And I think it's just called A Guide to Christian Meditation by Father John Bartunek, um, a legionnaire of Christ. So I encourage you to look that up on learning how to pray more deeply. Uh, so it says the required attentiveness is difficult to sustain. Distractions in prayer, distractions in meditation are universal. So expect them to happen. The next section of the podcast is about distraction, so I'm going to hold on to that for now. Uh, But it's difficult to sustain. So we're usually helped by giving our mind something to focus on. We're not trying to empty the mind. We're trying to fill it with the Lord. So we go to the scriptures, especially the gospels, holy icons. You can meditate with a holy image. It could be an image from the church where you attend Sunday Mass, or it could be an icon which is a, is a sacred image in the Eastern tradition of Christianity where the icon is written by somebody. Traditionally, they do it with a whole set of prayer and fasting. So the idea is they're sort of imbuing this image with a spiritual meaning by their, their, their faithful spiritual practice as they're drawing it, as they're writing it. And the icon is seen as a window to something transcendent. 
So the goal of the iconographer, the person writing the icon, isn't to create an exact depiction, but is to include symbols in the image which point to the transcendent realities, which point to the things that are absent to our senses. So meditating on icons is great. Or other Christian art from the Western tradition, there's a lot more sort of realistic art that you could meditate on too. You might look at liturgical texts, whether it be the Sunday readings for Mass, or you uh, you might meditate on the collect. That's, that's the opening and closing prayer from the Mass, this collection of prayer that the priest makes uh, during the Mass. Uh, you might also look at the writings of spiritual fathers, meaning uh, different saints or people from history that were great spiritual writers. Catechism also points out the book of creation, meditating on the beauty of nature, finding the creator in his creation. And then finally, it says the the page of history, right? The page on which the today of God is written. We can meditate about our life. Uh, Sometimes this form of meditation on our life is called the examine prayer, right? This meditation on our day, finding God's presence in our day. So these are all of the different sources of meditation. So how do you know you're meditating right? How do you know it's working? How do you know it's going well? So I would propose that a good meditation is the one that you do. A better meditation is the one that you finish. And the best meditation is the one that disposes you to receive more faith, hope, and love. A good meditation is the one that you do. So if you do it, it's good. Doesn't matter how, how well it goes. Doesn't matter how, how well you focus. Step one is just to do it. Uh, there's, a, there's a phrase from the business world uh, that there was a, a, a popular book named after, Good is the Enemy of Great, the book Good to Great. Uh, the author said, Good is the Enemy of Great, but don't let perfect be the enemy of done. <laughs> right? So, so just doing it is the first step. If you do it, it's good. It's even better if you finish it. Meaning once you're there meditating, the next temptation, the next tool of the enemy is to get you to stop meditating, to, to stop early. So it's going to be like, I've set aside 15 minutes. Well, I'll just do 12 minutes. I got most of it in. Maybe you set aside a half hour. This seems really long. I got other things to do. I'm going to stop at 20 minutes. That's pretty good. So no, the meditation you finish is even better. Spending the whole time that you've set aside And then the ultimate goal is more intimacy with the Lord. And the thing that enables us to have this intimacy are the theological virtues. So the best meditation is the one that helps you have more faith, hope, and love. Because this is what transforms us. The Lord's working in our life, these theological virtues. So these make us more godlike in our behavior. So the best meditation forms us in faith, hope, and love. Notice... um, I didn't say the good meditation is the one that feels good because <laughs> sometimes meditation doesn't feel good. Sometimes it feels bad. Like if you've been struggling with a sin a lot and you do a meditation on your life, chances are it probably isn't going to feel very good. Now, maybe the Lord might draw your heart to meditate on his mercy and his compassion and, and how he still sees you for, for the goodness uh, that you are. Um, in which case then it could you could move from like feeling bad to feeling good in that. But sometimes you might meditate on the passion, right? And that's going to be pretty uncomfortable, like watching Jesus get murdered in your mind. Like like that's that's kind of traumatic, you know? So so the meditation may or may not be positive feeling, and sometimes you might not feel anything. You're just kind of crucified in the dryness of the quiet. Um but whatever happens, uh, if the Lord is at work, That's a good meditation. So we all deal with distractions. Distractions are a universal experience in prayer and meditation. So when you're dealing with distractions, I would encourage you to start with your body. Start with your body. There's there's an adage by a counselor, Deb Dana. She says that story follows state, meaning the state of your body, the state of your nervous system, your mind is trying to fill in the gap and explain why that's the case. So oftentimes when your body is dysregulated, your mind can't help but try to react to that and and basically explain what's happening. So if you're in prayer and and your mind just keeps going back to something that happened during the day or imagining something that's coming up in the future or or just getting distracted about, 
you know, some imaginative thing that that has never happened. There's probably some dysregulation in your body in your nervous system that that's at the root of that. So there's there's something physical that your your brain is reacting to. And this is why you can't bring yourself to a point of focusing on what you want to focus on because um, you can't fight against your body. You are your body. <laughs> so taking the time to change your physical state, right? going back to the preparation, going back to the movement, going back to the, the breathing, the visualization, the opening prayer, uh, repeating those steps can sometimes help bring your body to a better place of calm so that your mind can rest and focus. That, that state of dysregulation in the body deactivates your prefrontal cortex, so the part of your brain that enables you to focus and relate and connect with people on a human level, and it causes your brain to function in a more instinctual way. Um, so you're reacting in a more animal way, a less, less human way. Uh, so taking the time to bring your body to a point where you're capable of connection is essential to be able to focus. Next, don't let your distractions become a distraction. Uh, St. Francis de Sales, his book, uh, uh, The Introduction to the Interior Life, he has a, a, a method of meditation in there and great guided meditations in there that you can check out at the beginning of it. But he says, if the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. Even if you do nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back, Though it went away every time, your hour would be very well employed. Right? So he's proposing making an hour of meditation and prayer every day. Um, I would recommend that too. Give it a try. What do you have to lose? Um, so every time you get distracted, bring your mind back to the point quietly. The point being what you're trying to meditate on, what you're trying to consider in the meditation. Meaning gently do it. Don't force your, your mind into it. When, when you get aggressive with yourself trying to focus, the distractions become a distraction. And then you dysregulate yourself more by trying to focus. And the culmination of this is sort of beating yourself up. Like, oh, I just can't focus. Like, I'm terrible. I can't meditate. I suck at praying. Yada, yada, yada. You're letting your distractions become a distraction. Uh, Teresa of Avila echoes this point too. Gently bring your mind back. I imagine, um, I imagine when I'm trying to meditate, what I'm trying to do is catch a bubble. Have you ever uh, blown bubbles or someone else blows a bubble and you're, you try to catch the bubble on your hand and you have to be so gentle. One, if you're, if you're too hard, you displace air and the bubble will move away from your hand or you hit the bubble and you pop it. So in order to catch the bubble, you need to gently position your hand so that the bubble lands on it. And then you can hold it. Uh, and this is how I imagine I'm handling my internal senses when I'm trying to meditate and getting distracted. I gently shift back to the material at hand. And I let the material land there. I let the material land there. Um, this is one of um, one of the, the recommendations of Teresa of Avila, like I said. Don't, um, don't willfully and forcefully um, pray. You can actually wear your mind out by forcefully trying to make it meditate. Uh, th the problem isn't that you're not trying hard enough. The problem is either you're unable to or you haven't sufficiently presented the material to your senses. Whatever our senses experience, it causes our passions to move. Whatever our senses experience, it causes our passions to move. Um, so either because of our body, we're incapable of presenting the meditation material to our senses, or we haven't sufficiently chewed on the material enough, reading the scripture passage over and over again, imagining the scene with our imagination by, by presenting, uh, what we're trying to meditate on to our senses, we will move our affections. We don't need to force ourselves to come up with things or force ourselves to think of things. We just need to gently present the material, present the truth, present the scripture to our mind and, and let ourselves react to it, right? Catch the bubble, hold it in place. Um, there's also an interdependence of examine and meditation. So this examine practice, meditating on our life, um, is, is important for slowly working through distractions, 
Our Lord says, where your heart is, there also will your treasure be. So oftentimes these distractions reveal to us the places that our heart is is given to in an inordinate way. Um, so, So by spending a sufficient amount of time examining our life, spending time both uh, noticing where God was in our day and then forming gratitude for that and praising the Lord for it, and then noticing the places where we acted as if God wasn't there, the places where we've sinned, and then repenting of that, making an act of contrition around that, uh, we enter into a habitual state where we don't have stuff to worry about. We don't have stuff to regret. We don't have stuff to, um, to, uh, to, to, to distract us. So in a sense, we by examining thoroughly, every time we come to prayer, we're sort of current with God. We're, he's up to date about our life, and we're up to date about him in our life. So then when I come to pray, I can actually focus on something else. I can bring something new into the equation other than just all of my stuff. So uh, plaguing distractions may be caused by the inability to stop thinking about your life, and you either need to spend more time on examine, on reflecting, in preparation for your prayer to free your mind to focus on the Lord, or you need to change the way you're doing your examine. Uh, so there's going to be a whole episode of physically spiritual on the examine prayer later on. It's a little bit of a teaser, um, but I don't want to leave you hanging. Uh, I'm going to have some uh, links to resources in the show notes uh, to help learn how to examine. And then finally, um, you may go through an entire meditation period Try to focus, try to calm the body, uh, going back to the material, presenting it gently to your mind, um, thoroughly examining, and you just are still distracted. Sometimes distractions are inevitable, and maybe even sometimes the Lord uses the distractions as a penance for us, right? That we could go through difficulty um, to realize who we are without him, um, to, to, to bring a, a sense of mortification into the, into the meditation to form the faculties of our soul through that suffering. Uh, so here is where a good uh, closing prayer comes in. Um, have you ever seen uh, a gymnastics competition? And when somebody, um, gymnasts mess up and they don't stick their landing, they oftentimes do this thing where they still like throw their hands in the air and they're like, you know, I did really well. And it's like by having this really good ending, they're they're like hoping the judges forget that they just crash landed. So I'm going to, I'm going to show you a little video um, of this gymnast doing this. Um, It's PG. Don't worry. I'm not going to show you like somebody not wearing clothes or something. And and for those of you listening on the podcast, you can listen to my narration. Uh, So this gymnast, he's approaching the vault. Nice run. Graceful, strong, powerful. He vaults. Good spin. At the end, he stumbles. But at the end, he throws his hands in the air as if it hasn't happened. Right? So this is a great image for our meditation. All right, we can come back to the to the other scene. Our meditation can be like this. We do a great preparation. We stick the beginning. And then as we keep going, we get distracted. We get off course. And... We stumble. We stumble into our distractions, (laughs) falling over. This guy kind of catches himself. He doesn't go all the way off into distractions for a half hour. And at the end, you you, you stick the landing, right? (laughs) A good closing prayer, heartfelt. We, We don't underestimate. All right, that's all the video. Don't underestimate the positive benefits of one our Father said with full attention and full devotion. The effect of our prayer is not always contingent on how well we pray. The Lord is doing a great work in your heart. So, so that, that our Father said really well with full attention and wholeheartedly at the end of your prayer, man, that's good stuff. Like, end your prayer wholeheartedly for the Lord, regardless of how it went. If you spent the whole hour in distractions, like DeSales says, and have just been drawing your mind back, meaning forming forming the habit to bring your attention back onto the Lord, even though you're distracted, sounds like a pretty good habit to be in in day-to-day life. At the end, you say that heartfelt prayer uh, and give it all to the Lord, and he can use it. All right, so that is our introduction to Christian prayer. Go to the show notes for those episodes. 
all the, the quotes that I've shared, the books that I've mentioned, uh, further resources on meditation. Uh, look forward to the next episodes about Christian mysticism, where we talk about the East and the West, our Eastern forms of, of, of meditation suitable for Christian use, and also on the examined prayer to go deeper on some of these other topics. Uh, and, and as you are, um, are trying to enter into meditation, I would just encourage you to persevere. Right? The best meditation is the one you do. A better meditation is the one you finish. And the absolute best meditation is the one that helps you grow in faith, hope, and love. So dig in, um, dig in and, and, and join me as we all try to meditate. This show and all media on Awakened Catholic is made possible by the Awakened Nation and the Hollow app. The Awakened Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hello.app slash awaken.